0: I'm going to show you how great I am. This was our tiny hour. I just want to say from the bottom of my heart, I'd like to take this chance to apologize to absolutely nobody. Hello and welcome to How to Take Over the World. This is Ben Wilson. This is part two on the series of the life of Brigham Young, the prophet and president of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, first governor of the state of Utah and colonizer of the American West. Just to remind you kind of where we left the story off. In 1844, Joseph Smith is murdered and it's not immediately clear what's going to happen to the church that he founded and left behind. It's not clear who, if anyone, will lead the church. But Brigham Young returns from a mission out east, says that the authority to lead the church is with the apostles, and that he, as the senior most apostle, has the authority in particular to to be the leader. There's a big standoff with another church leader named Sidney Rigdon, and uh, the church votes basically unanimously for Brigham Young to lead them. And so he becomes the new leader of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We're in the city of Nauvoo, Illinois, which Joseph Smith had established, and Brigham Young has just taken control. He is 43 years old. So today we're going to go through the rest of the life of Brigham Young, how he led thousands of people across the continental United States to establish a new state in the American West with a new people and a new way of life. And, you know, one of the reasons that I got into this story is because I think that it is so interesting that he was able to do this, to build new cities, kind of a new kingdom is is really probably the best way to think about it. And I think that's an opportunity that is more open and available than it has been since the time of Brigham Young with the rise of remote work, there has been a big increase in the number of people who are thinking about this and trying to do things in this arena of of building new cities um, or new states, new countries, new ways of living. And I'm friends with two of those people. And so I guess I will dedicate this episode to them, uh, Dryden and Kevin. I hope two of you are able to take inspiration from the way Brigham Young was able to do things in his quest to establish this this new thing. Uh, So let's get into it, but first a word from our sponsors. Today's episode is brought to you by Tiny Capital. We talk a lot about building empires and leaving legacies on how to take over the world. And nothing is sadder to me than when a beautiful legacy goes to waste, like Alexander the Great's empire falling apart right after his death. You want to be more like the Rothschilds, whose financial empire lasted decades, or even better like Caesar, whose empire lasted hundreds of years. That's where Tiny Capital comes in. For over a decade, they have been partnering with founders to give them quick, straightforward exits that protect their team and culture and keep their businesses operating for the long term. When you sell to Tiny, it's incredibly fast and easy. You avoid the long back and forth and life or death negotiations. You get a fair deal that gives you cash, but also builds for the long term and protects your legacy going forward. It's a really great company that is building an empire of their own by building the right way. I'm really impressed with how they do business. Maybe it's because they're Canadian. They're just a bunch of nice guys who are really smart, but also going to treat you right and make sure everyone gets a fair deal. So if you've got a business that you would like to sell, please check them out at tiny.com and let them know that I sent you again. That is tiny.com secure your legacy, work with the best, check out tiny capital. The first thing that Brigham Young had to do was unify the church. So he becomes the leader and Sidney Rignan, this rival leader who lost says, okay, we'll forget this. I'm going to take the people who will follow me and I'm leaving. I'm starting my own thing. So he goes back to Pittsburgh and starts his own church. And not that many people follow him, but a few do. And in the coming months, Brigham Young would face other splinter groups, as well as even more people who don't necessarily join splinter groups, but just sort of wander away. Many of them would go to St. Louis, which was a boom town at the time and and not very far away. So Brigham Young's first immediate goal is all right, let's stop the bleeding. Let's stop hemorrhaging people. Because at this point, the whole church, the whole movement is at risk of breaking up and falling apart. This was made more difficult by the fact that just like in Ohio and Missouri, mobs of non-Mormons were threatening to burn their houses and drive them out of the state. Brigham is absolutely committed that this will not happen again. They've been driven out of Ohio and Missouri, but he does not want the same thing to happen in Illinois. And he especially doesn't want it to happen right now. That would be too much change all at once, right? You imagine you're a convert in England who has just converted to Mormonism and you hear Joseph Smith is dead. Okay. If you also hear Nauvoo is destroyed and everyone is scattering, you probably start to think, okay, party's over. Maybe this was a bad idea and um, those types of situations can snowball. And before you know it, the whole thing is over. So for now his priority is to keep everyone together. Don't get driven out. So the Nauvoo Legion, which is their militia stays on high alert through 1844. Brigham Young himself has armed guards 24 hours a day. That's the state of heightened fear that Brigham Young in particular and the church as a whole were in at the time but throughout 1844 they're sort of able to keep the situation more or less stable and in large part i think that's because the people who had killed joseph smith thought that this would be the end of the movement and so they're not super concerned with keeping the pressure up on these sort of persecutions they think things are going to unravel now but it becomes clear throughout 1844 as brigham young takes control that uh uh-oh the mormons are not breaking apart and leaving So more needs to be done. Um, So then something big happens in January of 1845. The charter of the city of Nauvoo is revoked by the legislature of the state of Illinois. And that charter, which was essentially the constitution of the city of Nauvoo, had been very generous. It allowed Nauvoo to have their own mayor, their own city council, establish their own courts, have their own militia. And so when it's revoked, all that becomes illegal. Essentially, they're not allowed to have their own courts. They're not allowed to have their own militia to defend themselves. They don't have their own government. And this is bad for a number of reasons. Number one is probably the physical protection from mobs without the militia. You're not going to be able to protect yourselves. And, um, but another big thing is harassing lawsuits. So you got a bunch of people suing senior church leaders for damages and property, and you got a lot of people trying to serve indictments or criminal charges and without their own court system, even if Brigham Young is never convicted of anything, his enemies are going to be able to ruin his life with dozens of lawsuits and criminal charges. So starting in 1845, Brigham Young in particular is vulnerable to arrest and the saints as a whole are vulnerable to violent attacks, whether military or vigilante. But for the time being, what Brigham does in 1845 is essentially ignore this development. He keeps the Nauvoo Legion armed and ready, even though that's technically illegal now, and he ignores a lot of the subpoenas and lawsuits and just refuses to appear in court. In one particular case, some officials come and serve him an arrest warrant, and uh, he sends out a man, a friend, dressed in his coat and top hat, who they then take to prison, thinking that is Brigham Young and they free him later that day when they realize that they have been duped. So, you know, th- this is how close the calls are that he's literally ha- having to send out uh, body doubles in order to avoid arrest. So under this sort of siege environment, Brigham introduces some extra security measures. One of these is something called the Whistling and Whittling Brigade. This is an initiative to drive dissenters, apostates, criminals, and antagonists out of Nauvoo. They're already in hot water with the Illinois government, so they can't just kick out people and say, we kicked them out because they were critical of our religion. So, so he has to be a little more clever about it. So what he does is he gets these young men to follow around these undesirables and they whistle, and which is supposed to be obnoxious and annoying. And at the same time, they're whistling, they whittle. So they take out their knives and they carve some wood. And this is meant to be vaguely threatening, right? You got people following you around, whistling to annoy you and with drawn knives, while also maintaining plausible deniability. They're just whittling, we're just carving wood. No, I was not threatening him, officer. I don't know what he's talking about. And this kind of initiative um, works. It's actually kind of, I mean, it sounds kind of sinister, but it's a pretty smart approach. It does intimidate these people and many of them leave. Um, You have these types of initiatives because at this time, Brigham Young's leadership style changes 180 degrees from what we saw in last episode. He had been very collaborative and inclusive. And he got that leadership style from Joseph Smith, Joseph had been collaborative, inclusive, empowering, and very forgiving of other people. But I think from Brigham Young's attitude, now he says, well, look what there, it got him, it got him killed. So Brigham commits to act differently from now on, he's going to be authoritarian and come down hard on dissent in order to ensure that you don't have these kind of incidents in the future. You don't have the danger of assassinations. This works to keep the situation stable and you know, we'll see throughout this episode, this change has various consequences, some good, some bad. Um, But all these initiatives that Brigham Young introduces work to keep the situation stable through the first half of 1845. And then in August, anti-Mormon mobs begin burning outlying settlements outside Nauvoo. And then in the late summer, so August and September of 1845, Mormons start retaliating and they start burning the homes and crops of non-Mormons who were suspected mobbers. So, what you're seeing is almost an exact one for one replay of what happened to the saints in Missouri. So the governor of Illinois, his name is governor Ford. He's really committed to not letting a civil war break out. So he sends a state militia. It's led by Stephen Douglas, the famous statesman who would go on to have famous debates with Abraham Lincoln later in his life. Uh, He comes to Nauvoo and he sits down with Brigham Young and negotiates an agreement. And the agreement is that in the spring of 1846, the Mormons are going to leave Nauvoo. And what they get for that is Stephen Douglas basically says, "We will ensure your safety until then. So, we'll make sure the mobs stay off your backs if you will leave as soon as spring comes." And Brigham Young agrees to this. As I said, he really wanted to keep everyone together, but he knew that they were going to have to move on eventually. He just wanted to be able to move on of their own accord. He wanted to be able to walk out and not be driven out. That was really important to him. One of the reasons that he wanted a little bit more time was to complete the Nauvoo Temple. Now, this seems like kind of an odd priority. You're about to leave the city, so why are you trying so hard to build this large, decadent, beautiful building that you're not gonna be able to use for very long? But the Latter-day Saints were very excited about these new rituals that were gonna be revealed in the temple, so they want to complete the temple and participate in these rituals before they have to leave, because who knows how long it's gonna be before they complete another temple and, and are able to receive these rituals. Also, they had put a lot of blood, sweat, and tears into constructing this temple, so I think when you've worked so hard on something, You just want to see the thing through. You want to see it completed even if you're not going to be able to use it for very long. So through the end of 1845, they're working hard to complete this temple and they do in November and December of 1845 and January of 1846, they're able to use it. There is this huge outpouring of spiritual enthusiasm as Brigham Young standardizes and introduces the temple ceremonies that had been taught to him by Joseph Smith before his death. So people are literally cramming into the temple day and night. They're they're conducting ceremonies at night as well. There's so many people who who want to participate in these new ceremonies. And um, there's a lot of celebrating, there's singing and dancing inside the temple. And Brigham literally goes and lives in the temple for a while, he's sleeping there, he's staying there day and night, both because he wants to officiate these ceremonies for as many people as possible, and because he feels safe there. He's surrounded by friends, and so it's probably safe from assassination attempts or attempted arrests. But at the same time that there is this spiritual outpouring, unfortunately, Stephen Douglas wasn't fully able to follow through on his promises and mobs begin to attack the saints once again in the late winter, which is a little early, they were supposed to have until spring to to get out of the city. So Brigham Young realizes that they won't be able to make their planned departure time in the spring. So on February 15th, 1846, while the Mississippi river was still frozen over Brigham Young and the saints begin driving their wagons over the frozen ice. To temporary encampments on the Iowa side of the river. So Nauvoo was right on the Mississippi there in Illinois, but Iowa is just on the other side. That was their agreement that they would get out of Illinois. So they crossed the river in February of 1846. Some Mormons still lingered in Nauvoo, especially those who were poorer and, and maybe didn't have the resources, couldn't afford to, to get a wagon and leave. But over the coming months, they were harassed, they were beaten, they were whipped, they were driven by the mobs. And uh, by September, virtually the whole body of the church was gone from Illinois. The Nauvoo era of Mormonism was over. And this was when the Brigham Young era of Mormonism would really begin. He was leading a people in the wilderness. Once again, I should mention that not every Latter-day Saint left Nauvoo. Most notably, Emma Smith, the widow of Joseph Smith did not leave. She and her children stayed in Nauvoo. She and Brigham fought and they fought ugly. They did not like each other at all. Uh, there's a big falling out and part of it was that Joseph Smith himself had not had a great relationship with his wife right before he died. She was not happy about plural marriage, about polygamy, which he had introduced shortly before he was murdered, which I think is understandable. But also there were arguments about property. So Joseph Smith had not really kept his property very separate from the property of the church in general. It was unclear what belonged to him personally and what was church property. And so of course, when he dies, Emma says, It's all my property as his widow, it all belonged to him. And Brigham says, no, it all belonged to the church and the church should take custody of it. And so they have this falling out and Emma actually doesn't ever follow Brigham West, Uh, she along with her children stayed in Nauvoo and established something called the reorganized church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. It was supposed to be the same church. Uh, She just believed that Brigham Young had essentially stolen the church and that Joseph Smith intended for his sons to take over the church after he died. And so in the reorganized church, which was always smaller than the segment, you know, led by Brigham Young, um, Joseph Smith, the third, the son of, of Joseph Smith became the prophet. Once he came of age, he was still a boy at this time, but eventually he would become the prophet. And the reorganized church really deemphasized Joseph Smith's later teachings. In fact, most of them, they didn't acknowledge that Joseph Smith had ever taught. They dismissed them as inventions of Brigham Young. Uh, they said they never happened. But most historians agree that this is not true. Most historians agree that Joseph Smith did teach these things, Uh, but the reorganized church rejected plural marriage. They had no temple ceremonies. They didn't believe in plurality of gods or that men could become gods. They didn't believe in gathering to a single city and creating this earthly kingdom. It was essentially a mainstream Protestant church that happened to believe in Book of Mormon. I say it was, but the church still exists. It's now called the community of Christ. And luckily for them at the time, they didn't get persecuted in the same way that Brigham and his followers did. And that's because they had ejected all the weirdness out of the church. And so the question is why didn't Brigham follow this path? Cause it seems a lot easier, right? And the answer is that he was obsessed with Joseph Smith and he was obsessed with following Joseph's vision. And you know, the primary thing in Joseph's vision was creating a literal kingdom, a people from this church. It wasn't enough to have just a a church with congregations all over the place. The experiment required an independent political entity. And that is what Brigham Young would spend the rest of his life fighting for. And so if they had to endure being on the road and during persecutions and fights and all that, um, that's what they would do. So in order to do that, they needed a new gathering place. So early in 1846, they're strewn out all over Iowa. The, The orders were basically get out of Dodge, get out of Illinois, but there isn't a place to go yet so brigham young establishes a new meeting place in nebraska it's meant to just be temporary before they can find the final spot for their new kingdom and so the city is called winter quarters because they were just supposed to quarter there for the winter currently it's just outside of omaha i think it's basically a suburb of omaha at this point but at the time it's totally unoccupied and so he has all the mormons go there and once again brigham young is in his element this was always where he shined He's organizing people, he's having them move, he's averting disaster, he's literally in the mud with people helping them push their wagons. And I think it's really interesting to see how he's able to do this so effectively. Brigham Young's one written revelation, his one message from God that's so profound that it gets put in scripture alongside the Bible and the Book of Mormon is basically an org chart, which is really interesting, okay? So here's what it says, uh, and I'm quoting here. Let the companies be organized with captains of hundreds, captains of fifties, and captains of 10 with a president and two counselors at their head under the direction of the 12 apostles. Let each company provide themselves with all the teams, wagons, provisions, clothing, and other necessities for the journey that they can. Let each company with their captains and presidents decide how many can go next spring, then choose out a sufficient number of able-bodied and expert men to take teams, seeds, and farming utensils to go as pioneers to prepare for putting in spring crops. Okay, so basic instructions, you have these captains, tens, fifties, hundreds, and then a president and two counselors over each wagon train. So um, it's not rocket science, right? But what it is, is very simple and it can be implemented very quickly and very quickly provides just enough structure to help people know what to do, how to move, and also provides a very efficient reporting structure. If there's a problem, you only need, you know, four or five conversations before it makes its way to Brigham Young to the very top. And this is great practice. Uh, The management consulting firm McKinsey put out an analysis in 2020 that the most agile organizations have no more than six layers of management. And uh, that's not just McKinsey. You hear that a lot in consulting circles that the the optimal number for management layers is somewhere around five, six, seven. It's pretty low actually. Sometimes you'll see a couple more uh, depending on the organization. And Brigham Young was not someone who was reading McKinsey reports or or even the 1840s equivalent of McKinsey reports, but he did have a very intuitive understanding of what worked in effective management, especially in a crisis. So using this very bare bones, efficient organizing structure, he manages to gather the Latter-day Saints to winter quarters. There they plant crops and prepare to leave for the West in the spring of 1847, spring next year. And I say the West Brigham Young was pretty sure where they were going to go at this point. But a lot of people didn't know yet. There were a lot of potential places that they could go. Some people were thinking California, some were thinking Oregon, Vancouver Island, Mexico, and of course, Utah, where they did end up going. And Brigham Young says he has seen the place in a vision and he'll know it when he gets there. Privately, he's telling people it's probably the Salt Lake Valley. But as they're getting settled in winter quarters and getting prepared to take a journey the next year, it's a pretty tough year uh, that they spend in winter quarters. Everyone is just living in these log cabins. They know they're not going to stay, so they don't make any real efforts to make it nice and comfortable. It's just a halfway point, and it's cold. There's disease. Everyone is poor. They just left Nauvoo under duress. Understandably, people are not in a great mood. So in the face of this difficulty, some people start to resist and challenge the leadership of Brigham Young. And they're like, man, you have not got us in a good spot, Brother Brigham. And what do you do when times get tough like this? I think for many people, probably for myself, the instinct would be, all right, let's be conciliatory. Let's be nice. Let's people aren't happy. Let's give them something. But it turns out that's what weak leaders do. Strong leaders know that tough times are when you challenge your followers to step it up and do more, do better. And that's what Brigham does here. He goes to the people and says, I know we're unhappy. And guess what? It's because you're wicked. You're not obedient enough to me and to God, and you need to repent. And he goes on kind of this barnstorming tour through winter quarters in, in the first half 1846 I was actually just listening to an excellent podcast called The Cost of Glory where the host makes the same point about Cyrus the Younger in Anabasis anyway this old book about these Greeks when things get tough with his Greek mercenaries uh, this Cyrus the Younger challenges them he doesn't make concessions the toughest times are when you push your followers to do their best work not the time to go easy and this approach works the people are able to come together unify put aside their complaints and quarrels and focus on the heart of why they're there, which is this spiritual commitment, this shared belief that they all have. And so, um, once this happens, once people repent are obedient are strongly following him, um, then in the second half of 1846, Brigham takes a much more measured approach and, um, and relaxes a little bit and emphasizes singing and dancing, raising everyone's spirits. In fact, at the time he says, one of my favorite quotes, uh, one of my favorite Brigham Young quotes, he says, the wicked have no right to dance. Dancing and music belong to the saints. Um, I believe that. What do you think of this? I, I believe that singing and dancing are only for, for me and my homies. When people, I, I don't like sing and dance. It's it's wrong. Um, well, this time at winter quarters is very important for a number of reasons. One of which is they're preparing to leave. Yes, but also it, it's the Mormons first opportunity to openly live plural marriage amongst themselves. So in Nauvoo, it had always been hush hush. It had always been a secret. Joseph Smith was practicing it. He got his apostles and some top leadership of the church to also engage in plural marriage, but no one knew, no one felt comfortable discussing it or being open about it generally. And in winter quarters, that changes. Brigham Young is walking around with his various wives. He's got a couple big log cabins that he builds where he's housing multiple wives together in these sort of big communal households. And a few other apostles are doing the same. And it's not just plural marriage, but really Mormons have their first chance to live completely to themselves without having to worry about prying eyes in Missouri, in Illinois, there were other settlements nearby, even though they had their own cities, but here in winter quarters in Nebraska, they're literally in the middle of nowhere. I mean, nowhere. And and so they're doing lots of things um, that are kind of different. So Brigham institutes a new doctrine called the law of adoption. So the idea behind this is, um, okay, you're getting married to various women and taking them as wives. And in mormon parlance that's called getting sealed okay sealing you can think is like welding is another way joe smith described it so you're getting welded to these women as wives so that you're connected to them forever these are eternal marriages well now brigham young rolls out this thing called uh, the law of adoption where you can get sealed to various men and take them as surrogate sons another way to connect yourself to people that you know and love but what this also is is you're really seeing a pivot to what you might call old testament christianity no longer is the model for how to live a good Christian life within this Mormon community. It's not, you know, it's not Paul, right? Who was urbane, educated, and celibate, as far as we know. Um, You get the idea from Paul that to him, maybe the ideal life is one that is detached from earthly cares, impoverished, and dedicated entirely to prayer and praising God. But the primary model for Brigham is not that. He's trying to emulate the, the patriarchs Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, violent men with large households of wives, children, and servants. So with this law of adoption, you know, Brigham, especially Brigham Young, but also other senior apostles and leaders in the church like Heber C. Kimball, Parley Pratt, they're forming these little tribes. They've got all these adopted sons. Sometimes those adopted sons have adopted sons. People try to conduct business within their tribes. Sometimes people even speak in that way. They talk about the tribe of Brigham or the tribe of Heber. Are try trying to do favors for those that they've adopted? They're basically establishing patronage networks. And it's interesting to see, you know, in some ways Brigham Young is in the same circumstances as Moses. He's leading people in the wilderness, taking them to a promised land, trying to ensure their survival and their obedience to God. And he responds to these similar circumstances by developing an Old Testament theology and an Old Testament way of life. Um, so, so maybe it really is as simple as the so circumstances kind of dictate the beliefs and practices of, of many religions. You know, that law of adoption is wouldn't survive for very long. It's not practiced anymore in Mormonism, and it wasn't practiced for, for very long. But uh, I think it's interesting that the precedent is there in Mormon history and doctrine. And it's interesting to me to see Brigham Young trying to branch out into something that was truly unique, and truly very different and weird compared to to what American Christians were used to. And by the way, how does this work? Can only a few people be Abrahams? Brigham Young has a good quote where he lays out the the fractal nature of how this was supposed to work. He says, and I'm quoting here, "Say that I'm ruling over 10 sons or subjects, and soon each one of them would have 10 men sealed to them and then would be ruler over them. That would make me ruler over 10 presidents or Kings. So in other words, these people had been worried like, okay, so I want to be a, a president or a King. So if I'm sealed to you as your son, Brigham, does that mean I, I can't be one anymore? And he says, no, 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 no. This kind of works like a endless network, right? It's like a, it's a pyramid scheme. <laughs> the The Mormon love for pyramid schemes runs really deep, right? It's Hundreds of years old, but that's kind of his theology. That, that would be the the main thing that Brigham Young, tried to preach over the course of his career was this theology of increase that we're here to improve the world and to increase in knowledge, in learning, in power, in family, you know, we're supposed to improve and and increase our property and our towns and our communities. And it makes sense. That is a really great theology for people who are about to be in the middle of a a wilderness and trying to to build a new kingdom out, out of scratch. So he's teaching all this and then in 1847 the first company leaves from winter quarters and uh, they now know basically where they're going although interestingly brigham young is still not saying exactly where they're going but more or less they're headed for utah and brigham young leads the first company it's made up almost entirely of healthy young and middle-aged men this is not supposed to be a normal migration like the ones that would come later this was a trailblazing expedition they're supposed to not only go to utah and set up camp but also kind of make the map, find the trail, set up markers, establish ferries, fords and mountain passes, measure distances, stuff like that. Stuff that will make the journey easier for those who come after. And so this is set up with military precision. Everyone gets up at 5 a.m. They walk until 8.30 p.m. and are in bed by 9 p.m. They have very regular prayer meetings. Uh, they average 15 to 20 miles a day, which is pretty good. In the last episode, I talked a little bit about this very unique American environment that Brigham Young came from where this entrepreneurial spirit, this ingenuity was really widespread. And you can see that on display in this journey. One of the things I found most fascinating is there's a camp scribe, a guy by the name of William Clayton, and he collaborated with an apostle named Orson Pratt, who had a little bit of mathematical training. And they got a carpenter in the camp to create a primitive odometer. They designed it up and and got him to build it. And this little thing could attach to one of the wagon wheels and it would click and it would track the number of wheel turns throughout the day and they used this odometer to get a measurement of how far they had traveled each day and it was pretty good it was pretty accurate actually people have looked their measurements and it was pretty accurate so i mean to me that's just amazing that they were able to to do that with a little bit of wood and some duct tape you know metaphorically speaking um, with with very little materials i I was just very impressed by the ingenuity so they're headed out And they make it most of the way there. They're in Wyoming when they're met by a man named Sam Brannan. Sam was a leader of a group of Mormons who had been on the East Coast, basically. And rather than trying to cross the plains, they had made the voyage by ship. They boarded a boat called the Brooklyn and sailed all the way around Cape Horn up to San Francisco. And they land in San Francisco and their leader, Sam Brannan, looks around and thinks, Whoa, we don't need to go any further. We have found paradise. This is where we should be. And if you've ever been to San Francisco, you know why. You know, even take out all the buildings, everything that's been built. It's just some of the best land on earth. It's beautiful. It's got terrific weather, a natural harbor, good farmland. If you're a settler, that's where you want to land. So Sam comes out to Wyoming and basically says, Brigham, I'm hearing all this nonsense about Utah. You got to be kidding me, man. This California place, San Francisco, it's amazing. Can't stop in Utah. You got to keep going. And Brigham says, no, we're going to Utah. And it's interesting to hear why he chose Utah specifically instead of California or Oregon, listen to this quote about Utah. He says, there are no locations less desirable than this for any other purpose than the one for which we have selected it, not for its intrinsic value in a pecuniary point of view, but in order that we might enjoy our religion in peace, preserve our youth and virtue and be freed from the insults, abuses and persecution of our enemies. So in other words, Sam. I hear you, California. It sounds amazing, but we are intentionally going to the middle of nowhere. And it's so that no one will bother us so that we have a chance to live out this religious experiment in peace and look, Utah is actually a pretty nice place, um, but it is the desert and is very remote and very undesirable compared to California and Oregon and some of the other places that they could have settled Uh, there's another good quote from Brigham Young where this pastor comes to Utah after it's been settled and, uh, and says, to Brigham and knowing that Brigham is a religious man he says Brigham it's amazing what you and God have been able to do with uh with this valley and uh Brigham gets a little smile and says yeah well you should have seen it when just God was in charge of it um and uh it's true like it, Utah's nice but it's the desert and uh, it is very undesirable especially compared to California and Oregon so from Wyoming Brigham ignores Sam Brandon's pleas And they set out again for Utah. It's relatively uneventful. There are no adverse events except for at the very end, Brigham gets something that they call mountain fever. It's probably a tick borne disease, nothing too serious, but basically he has the flu for the very end of the journey. So when they get there to the Salt Lake Valley, he's laid up in the back of a wagon and, um, they pull up, they show Brigham the Valley and Brigham says that he's had this vision of the exact place where they need to end up. So he looks out over the Salt Lake Valley and says, this is the right place. Drive on this is a very famous moment in Mormon lore in Utah history in the retelling. It's often shortened to this is the place. He he actually said this is the right place, but okay, that's fine. This is the place. And there's a park at the spot called. This is the place park I actually used to live right by it. And it's in the state song. This is the place. So that's a famous moment from Brigham Young's life. This is the place. So they pull into the Salt Lake Valley and for a month, Brigham Young recovers from this illness and helps lay out the roads, divides the area into plots of land, helps build some cabins. They raise a flag and then he doesn't stay. He goes back across the trail that they just blazed to winter quarters. And for the next two years, he keeps going back and forth. So throughout 1847, 1848, he leads various wagon trains from winter quarters to Salt Lake City. And again, this is really where he shined, organizing these mass movements of people. Uh, This is probably Brigham Young at his peak. Migration is incredibly successful in the face of a lot of dangers and difficulties. The vast majority of saints made it safely. They had to worry about wild animals, about bad water, finding food, uh, native Americans that were often not friendly, crossing rivers and streams, adverse weather events. Um, but despite all this, according to one book I read, uh, I think it was Brigham Young and the expansion of the Mormon faith by Thomas Alexander. The death rate for Mormons on the Mormon trail was actually lower, than the death rate for the United States as a whole. In other words, you were safer following Brigham Young on the Mormon trail than you were just being a a Jack or Jill out in New York. And that says a lot about how successfully Brigham Young manages this migration. Now this whole time Brigham Young has been leading the church as the senior apostle of the Quorum of the 12 apostles. But it's around this time that Brigham Young decides that this isn't working. It's not working for him to just be another apostle, albeit the senior most one, but not really differentiated that much. Uh, Parley Pratt and John Taylor are two apostles who come out in the first Vanguard company. And in Brigham Young's absence, they have been directing affairs in Salt Lake City, which is fine. They're good leaders, but it's not long before some minor conflicts arise, differences of opinion, slightly different visions. And it just becomes clear to Brigham Young that, look, not just with me, we're going to have all sorts of these. You can't have 12 people all equal running an operation. Like, that just doesn't work. You got to have one person who's in control. So in the winter of 1847, he decides to reorganize the first presidency, which was this institution at the very top of the church, even above the apostles. You know, Joseph Smith was the president in the first presidency. He was the prophet and he had two counselors. And so Brigham Young wants to bring this back with himself as president. And at first, this is opposed by the apostles, especially the brothers Parley Pratt and Orson Pratt. And uh, it had to be approved by the apostles in order to happen. So it's not looking good. So he embarks on this campaign to persuade them to reorganize the first presidency and declare him prophet of the church. And this is where you see how much Brigham Young has changed since Joseph Smith's death previously, you know, when he was in charge of the apostles in England, he was known for resolving conflicts very peacefully for managing to accomplish things without ruffling feathers. But here he takes the complete opposite approach. He basically browbeats the apostles into reestablishing the first presidency. When Pratt tells him all the apostles are equal, Brigham says wrong. I am the mouthpiece you are the belly that's an actual quote i'm mouthpiece you're the belly nice and about parley pratt and john taylor he says i shall make parley pratt and john taylor bow down and confess that they are not brigham young he and parley pratt have a big falling out over this and when parley finally relents and asks for forgiveness brigham responds i forgive you but i swear to you i shall whip you and make you stick to me so his leadership style has changed significantly to say the least but it works i mean he he becomes president, he become, he gets the first presidency just like he wanted. And um, I do think on some level this goes to show that you can't replace talent. If, if you're one of those great leaders, you're gonna figure it out how to get it done one way or another. And with a man like Brigham Young, uh, he get it done both the nice way and the ruthless way, whatever it took. So uh, yeah, winter of 1847, Brigham Young becomes president of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And out in, uh, in what we now know as Utah, they uh, very quickly establish a government They call it Deseret, which is a Book of Mormon word that means honeybee, and petition the federal government to become a state. Uh, They quickly realize that won't happen, so they send a new petition to become a territory, and they are granted territorial status, though the U.S. government rejects the Mormon name of Deseret. That was like a little little funky, a little weird. Uh, So instead, they name the territory Utah, after the Native American tribe that was most prominent in the area, the Utes, and they appoint Brigham Young as territorial governor. The first thing that Brigham Young has to worry about is getting people established economically. Now I say economically, when we think of economics, we think of money, but it's not so much about money is it is about not starving. They need food right now. So, you know, even though Brigham Young is primarily a religious leader, supposedly, he's not very focused on religion for the first few years. He's focused on farming, on building sustainable communities. And for a few years people are living pretty close to the starvation line. So this is not, you know, something with low stakes. This is high stakes. So they're they're digging canals, they're planting crops, they're uh, doing everything that it takes to survive. Now, one problem with becoming a territory and not a state is that territories, at the time, and I think still, are administered by the federal government in Washington. So that means they don't have any local government. So Brigham Young is the territorial governor because he's appointed the territorial governor by the president but they don't have a locally elected government. And that means that in addition to Brigham Young, there are people who are appointed to the government as judges and officials, and uh, they're not Mormons. They're East Coasters. They're Americans. They're non-Mormons. So in 1851, there's this judge. His name is Bracus. And he comes out. And at first, he's open to Mormons. He thinks they got a raw deal in Missouri and in Illinois. And he comes and, you know, he's trying to be open-minded and Of course, you know, if you're going to come be a judge, you'd like to get along with the people that you're supposed to be living amongst, but he gets out to to Utah and he can see that they're practicing polygamy, which the Mormons were not open about yet. And he can also see that it's a very theocratic state and their allegiance is more to each other, to this church and to Brigham Young than it is to the United States of America. So he's got these two things in mind, polygamy and this religious allegiance. So he gives a speech and in the speech, he he says, let's all work together. Let's make this place better. And before you know it, you all are going to be patriotic and law abiding and your women will be virtuous. And that was the wrong thing to say. The Mormons interpret it as him saying that as it stands, your men are traitors and your women are whores, but I can fix all that. So after his speech, Brigham Young stands up and gives a fiery rebuttal. And he says that Bacchus is either profoundly ignorant or corruptly wicked. We love the government and the constitution but we do not love the damned rascals who administer the government. And then he says, he's talking about Brachus, and he says, look, I'm gonna keep my comments pretty mild right now. I'm not gonna say anything that could lead to the pulling of hair or cutting of throats. Okay, so officially he's trying to temper his words, lower the temperature of the room. He doesn't want these things to happen, but it has the opposite of the intended effect. Brachus hears this and thinks, wait, I'm sorry, cutting throats is on the table? this is not what I signed up for. So he thinks his life is in danger. And so he and the other judges flee Utah and go back to the States. Those officials who flee come to be known as the runaway judges and Brigham Young and others write to the government. They try and get ahead of the story. They know this guy guy's gonna go back and say Brigham Young threatened my life and I had to get out of Dodge. So they say, look, this guy was no good. They didn't understand us. We didn't like them. Can you please send us some new friendlier judges? And miraculously, this works. It's not worth the government's time to fight these people. Honestly, from the US government's perspective, this was like not great land. They thought it was gonna be hard to to get people to settle there. So the fact that these Mormons are doing the hard work for them of settling Utah, they're happy to let them do it. So they send them new judges. Those judges flee and bring them and the Mormons get some friendlier judges in their place. And so um, the 1850s, early 1850s are are pretty good. Saints starting to get established. There are fledgling towns with public buildings that are starting to pop up. And so Brigham Young decides that this is the time to announce polygamy to the world and uh, and let them know what they're doing. So in 1852, the church publicly announces that, yes, we practice plural marriage. And I don't know that there is any great way to make that kind of announcement. But if there is, they did not figure it out. Uh, this announcement does not go particularly well. A lot of people leave the church and missionary work basically grinds to a halt. Previously, people had been able to dismiss polygamy as nothing more than a rumor, but now that they know it's real, most people think that is very weird. They find it very odd. And so, uh, yes, they're able to live how they wanted to live, now fully, publicly, openly, but it comes at a high cost. So Brigham Young is teaching plural marriage. They're finally offering kind of theological defenses of plural marriage, why it's necessary. And at this time, Brigham Young is introducing other doctrinal innovations. One of these is called the Adam God theory. So this is a theory that is quite difficult to understand. Brigham Young was not a theologian. So the Adam God theory was frankly, never totally coherent, but the gist of it was this Adam, the first man is God. The, he he was God, our father and took human form in Adam, much in the same way that Jesus was also God in, in human form, but and this is where it gets complicated, he grants that Adam is not Jesus, these are separate people, nor is he God the Father, as people typically think of God the Father. In one passage, he describes it as God the Father, Jesus the Son, and Adam the grandson. That's like a, a third God, lower. Mind you, that this is in the framework of a theology where anyone could become a God. People are gods in embryo, there's not the same distance between God and man that most religions put there. So there's room for gods all over the place, I guess. But it's still unclear to most Mormons who are used to the classical Trinity, the Godhead. They're used to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And uh, now you're telling us that there's the Father, the Son, and Adam? It's weird. And the apostles were not totally comfortable with it. Some of them never get on board, most notably Orson Pratt, who goes around and says, I don't know what Brigham's talking about. This is essentially not true. And that leads to some some pretty big conflicts between Orson Pratt and Brigham Young. And uh, finally, in 1857, Brigham, kind of admits defeat on the Adam God theory. He says, quote, whether Adam is the person that we should consider our heavenly father or not is considerable of a mystery to a good many. And uh, that's as good as an apology as you ever get from Brigham Young. It's basically his way of saying, all right, I'm going to leave this alone. It's a tough doctrine. He also teaches a new doctrine called blood atonement, which is this idea that there are certain sins that are so grave that the only way that you can ever be forgiven for them is by having your blood shed. So the example that would probably make most sense to the most people is murder. If you murder someone, the only way to get forgiveness for that is to yourself be killed. Lots of people believe in capital punishment for murder. Okay, fine. People can buy into that. But he also says that blood atonement might be necessary for sins like apostasy or adultery. And I I know very few people who think that if you cheat on your wife, you should be killed. Well, actually, now that I say it out loud. Anyway, there are very few, if any, examples of people abusing this and murdering adulterers in Utah, but what you do have is people who maybe use it as an excuse when they already want to do someone harm. Anyway, much like Adam God theory, blood atonement would not survive long. Brigham Young was great at building institutions, building towns and cities, and building businesses, but he was not great at building doctrines, at uh, establishing new ideas in a religious context. So the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has officially repudiated blood atonement. Uh, they did so all the way back in the 19th century and then once again in the 20th century. So, But those, those are the two major attempts he makes at doctrinal innovation. Throughout the early 1850s, Brigham's family is rapidly expanding. By 1858, he has 47 children living across a number of houses throughout Salt Lake City and beyond, actually. A couple in Provo, I think. And he needs novel arrangements in order to manage a family of that size, as you can not imagine. I mean, that's a question a lot of people have is, when you have that many wives and that many children, just like, how do you do life? So one way is that he builds two houses called the Beehive House and the Lion House. And these are very big houses, they still stand. Uh, They're still there in Salt Lake City, you can go take a tour of them and see what it was like. I recommend it if you're in Salt Lake City, go to the Lion House, it's cool. And so he had some families, the wife of Brigham Young would say, I can't live with all these women, and so he would say okay we'll figure out a situation for you and they would get set up in an individual house for that wife with her children but other women found that lonely right to, to live in a house basically as a single mother with, with no husband there and so they liked this communal living arrangement of these big houses and so they had two big houses where you would have up to 12 wives with their children living there family life is very complicated with that many wives And uh, there were politics, conflicting personalities, jealousies, and all sorts of difficulties. Um, One of the ways that Brigham managed it was with this sort of military discipline, right? So there was family prayer at a very certain time, and uh, he would send out the call, and everyone had to be there. And, um, you know, when you have that many children, you have to be very efficient about things. You have to run things like an assembly line and he would set budgets for each of his wives. Uh, it is, you know, I, I guess I can't get too deep into it here, but it is interesting to read about how you manage that type of household. And the short answer is, you kind of manage it like a business, that's kind of how I think of it. So it's complicated, but to be honest, it mostly works. And uh, despite these complications, domestic life is mostly a source of joy for, for Brigham in his life in the 1850s. At this time, he establishes a company called the Brigham Young Express and Carry Company, It was often shortened to the YX company, Young Express, YX. And it transports mail freight and passengers from Missouri to California and obviously makes a stop in Utah. So basically Mormon converts uh, who were baptized either in the U.S. or in England or other places in Europe, uh, they had to make this journey. So in order to get there, they needed to be resupplied along the way. And they needed wagons and all this stuff. And so Brigham Young thinks, I don't love that when these people are coming out to Utah, They're getting all this stuff. They're getting all these supplies from non Mormons. I'd like to keep it all in the family. So to speak, like to be working and giving our money to each other and helping build things up. So he builds this YX company to transport people from Missouri to Utah and help supply them so that, you know, they're buying supplies from, from Mormons instead of non Mormons. The company also gets a government contract to transport mail and deliveries. And the YX company, um, was quite successful. At least initially it it was profitable, did well for Brigham and did well for the saints, helped them uh, get across the plains. But so he's got all this stuff going on. And while his mind was so concerned with transporting people to Utah and getting them set up in these new towns and cities and getting them to live in economically viable towns, the religious aspects of life had really come to be neglected. So Brigham looks around and finds out that some of these towns are not even having church meetings, no church meetings in this explicitly religious kingdom, right? This community they're trying to set up, the people are so concerned with building their farms and getting food that they're literally not even having church. So Brigham is afraid that they're going to lose their way, lose sight of their unique mission. So he kicks off something called the Mormon reformation, essentially Brigham Young and his counselors and some of the apostles go around and they start giving these fiery sermons. They're calling people to, to repent he's telling them you've forgotten God. He encourages people not to drink alcohol, not to smoke tobacco. They encourage people to get rebaptized and recommit themselves to God. That's how bad things have gotten. You know, you're you're baptized to wash away your sins. Well, guess what? It's not going great. So you need to be baptized again. Along with rebaptism, they're encouraging plural marriage, and the number of plural marriages skyrockets at this time. At the time of the Mormon Reformation, and this is beginning really in the fall of 1856. Goes 1856 and 1857. And this is timely. It's good that he fortified the people's faith because he was about to deal with the most serious crisis of his tenure in Utah war was about to come to his doorstep. The buildup to the Utah war starts early. They have the runaway judges of 1852, which we talked about. Then they basically have friendly judges that are acquiescent and everything goes smoothly from 1853 to 1855. But in 1855, there's a judge named William Drummond who's appointed to be the chief judge in Utah. And uh, he was not a good choice. He leaves his wife back east, and he comes out to Utah with a prostitute as his companion. Now, you can probably imagine how this goes over with a highly religious people who are specifically in this area to be living out their religious commitments. So Brigham Young calls Drummond, and this is publicly, quote, as vain as a peacock and as ignorant as a jackass. So things get off to a great start. Uh, Then there's an incident where apparently Drummond assaults a man So uh, the Mormons are threatening to prosecute him in local courts and throw him in jail. So Drummond runs back to Washington, D.C. and starts telling everyone who will listen about this dangerous theocracy that Brigham Young is running out in Utah. He's telling everyone that he's the de facto monarch. He's the king of the territory, which sounds scary and is honestly kind of true. And obviously at this point, he's not the only one telling these stories. There are other runaway judges and there are other officials who had bad experiences in Utah and had access to grind. So uh, opinions in Washington and on the East Coast are not, uh, are not very favorable to the Mormons at the moment. And then there's an election in 1856. And in 1857, James Buchanan becomes president of the United States. And Brigham Young sends him a letter. Sends him a bad letter. He does a bad job. I think Brigham has managed to run so many judges out of Utah for so long that he's confident in himself. Uh, maybe a little overconfident. He's like, okay, what are they going to do to me? I'm in control here. I'm going to tell him how it really is. So he sends his letter to James Buchanan. He essentially says, you know, congrats on the election, blah, blah, blah. By the way, can you stop sending these corrupt judges? Anyone who comes out here who's corrupt will be severely punished and sent back to you. So um, let's just cut to the chase and why don't you send us some good judges? And also, by the way, can you stop stationing soldiers out here? We don't like these soldiers and I don't think you have the authority to do it. So cut it out. And so it seems like he's flouting the authority of the federal government. And in a way he is. So the Buchanan administration starts to get concerned from this letter and they start asking around Washington, like, okay, what's going on with these Mormons? And, uh, well, who are the people who know anything about the Mormons? Who's been out to Utah? It's all these runaway judges and officials. And boy, do they have some things to say about Brigham Young. So James Buchanan and his administration hear all these things and uh, he convinces himself that Utah is in a state of rebellion He gets a bill through Congress that authorizes the creation of an army of two and a half thousand soldiers to go escort a new territorial governor to Utah, to replace Brigham Young and enforce federal rule. When Brigham hears this, he sends the territory into a state of emergency. At first he's defiant. He says, they kicked us out of Ohio. They kicked us out of Missouri. They kicked us out of Illinois. They cannot move us from here. We have nowhere left to go. We're going to stay and fight. And I think you can see his point, right? Like how many times are we gonna have to do this? Like we can't just, we can't keep running every time. At a certain point, you kinda gotta draw a line in the sand. And so they implement some emergency measures. They form a militia, start trying to recruit Native American allies, and cease all commerce with non-Mormons. And they make the decision that, okay, we probably can't fight these people. It's literally the US government. We don't have enough men to fight them. Standing army to standing army, two and a half thousand soldiers, which by the way, would eventually swell to over 5,000 soldiers a full third of the entire U S army. And and they can't beat that. Even if they could have beat that, that would just provoke an even larger response from the U S government. So instead they decide to try to stall and delay this army. They're going to burn grasslands so that the army's horses and oxen don't have anything to eat. They're going to harass their supply trains and destroy their supplies. And if that doesn't work, Brigham commits to the Russia strategy, right? If you remember Napoleon in Russia, Brigham says, and this is a quote, I shall lay this building in ashes. I shall lay my dwelling houses in ashes. I shall lay my mills in ashes. I shall cut every shrub and tree in the valley, every pole, every inch of board, and put it all into ashes. I'll make a potter's field of every canyon they go into. So in other words, he's saying, if you guys come here, there's gonna be nothing for you to take control of. We're gonna start by making it impossible for you to come out here with all of our harassment and these kind of lightning strikes to take out your supply trains. But if you do make it out here, you're going to take command of a pile of rubble and that's it. Uh, This kicks off a very bad time in terms of relations between Mormons and non-Mormons in Utah. There's mostly Mormons, but there were some non-Mormons. And uh, in one instance, there's a wagon train of people bound for California called the Fancher Baker train. They're from Arkansas. And of course, if you're traveling from Arkansas to California, you're expecting to be able to resupply along the way. And, um, you know, Utah has been here for a decade now, and they're expecting to be able to resupply in Utah. And all of a sudden, you know, they didn't have anything to do with this Utah war. They are finding that none of these Mormons will trade with them. They don't give them any supplies. And so that's not only bad, but like kind of dangerous for them. And so they start quarreling with local Mormons, so start insulting them and things escalate. A few Mormons attack them, essentially form a little militia and uh, they kill a couple of them. So the Fancher Baker train circles up in this valley called Mountain Meadows and the local Mormons are trying to decide, okay, what do we do? We attack these people. It's probably rash, but we killed a few of them. If we let them go, they're going to tell the Californians and the federal government is going to find out that we attacked them and that we killed a few of them. They're going to come down even harder on us. Uh, This army's coming out here, so what do we do? They write to Brigham Young. They ask him what they should do. And before Brigham Young's response can come, they decide uh, to take matters into their own hands. They say, all right, here's what we're going to do. We're going to massacre everyone and we're going to blame it on the Paiute Indians. And so on September 11th, 1857, it's known as the Mountain Meadows Massacre. And um, it's awful. They kill over 120 people, come under a flag of peace and say, hey, we're going to escort you out of here. And then on a certain signal, they turn and uh, all these all these Mormon guys holding guns shoot people at point blank range and massacre them. Um, Yeah, so that's the Mountain Meadows Massacre. It's uh, it's one of the ugliest moments in mormon and utah history um, as things like this are happening uh, the army is inching closer and closer but the mormons do manage to slow them down with this policy of attacking supplies and burning grasslands and they're making them go slower but they are going to make it right eventually the army is going to make it and so brigham says okay his first inclination is to say we're gonna we're gonna fight this thing so he sets a certain line in a canyon near salt lake city and he gives secret instructions and says If the army insists on coming, once they cross this line, let guerrilla war commence, you know, we're going to put men in the canyons and we're going to start picking off soldiers from up in these canyons with snipers. But luckily for him, snowstorms start early that year. And in November, it forces the army to stop right before they reach that line where hostilities would have commenced. And frankly, this is horrible management by Brigham. It was uh, not a good decision. If they had started firing. They had started killing soldiers. The response from the federal government would have been overwhelming. And this kingdom that he had worked so hard to scratch out of the desert would have been over in short order, right? The, the army would have had no trouble snuffing them out. But luckily, he's, uh, he's saved by God or fate or good luck because the U.S. Army stops right in time. And so they decide to winter just outside of Salt Lake City and basically say, in the spring, we're coming for you. We're coming into Salt Lake City. So it's kind of a showdown over the winter. Everyone's just holding their breath to see what's going to happen. And despite all this, despite the overwhelming show of force right on his doorstep, Brigham Young is still not backing down. You know, people talk about vision and the importance of vision. I've talked about it. I made the point in the Steve jobs episode that we were able to see Apple with Steve Wozniak and without Steve jobs. So with, you know, a technical genius and without the, the visionary, and then we were able to see Apple with Steve jobs and without Steve Wozniak with the visionary and without the technical genius and the Apple Steve jobs was much more successful. And th- the lesson to me was vision is the most important thing. How can it be that valuable? It's the easiest thing in the world to have a vision. How easy is it to say we're going to build insanely great products? And then how difficult is it to actually build those insanely great products? Right? Uh, so it seems like vision is much easier than engineering. So how is it that valuable? Well, th- these visionaries are insanely committed to the principles that undergird their vision. They refused to compromise when any sane person would compromise. You see this all the time with Steve Jobs and you see it here with Brigham Young. Any sane person would have just sacrificed some of Utah's independence and submitted to the federal troops, but not Brigham Young, who was crazy about this vision of an independent kingdom of God. But what's he gonna do? There are no, it seems like there's no good decisions left. But at this point, he gets another lucky break. This man named Thomas Kane, who was not a Mormon, but had always been very friendly to the Mormons and made kind of a career out of being a diplomat, being their go-between, who who could you know go between Mormons and non-Mormons and, and negotiate whenever they had conflicts. So he hears about this, and he's a reputable, upstanding non-Mormon. So he goes to President Buchanan and says, hey, let me uh, let me go negotiate for you. Let me go resolve this conflict. And I guess the other thing to mention is that as they winter, in Utah, just outside of Salt Lake City, this army all of a sudden becomes very unpopular in the United States because there's a giant depression. There's there's a, a big economic recession in the United States. And so all of a sudden, you know, what had been popular because everyone was like, sure, go kick around the Mormons. No one likes them. Polygamy, they're weirdos. Uh, none of us like them. But all of a sudden it's like, okay. When times were good, we were fine sending out this army. But now that there's economic hardship, we're spending a lot of money to send out this army and for what the Mormons that they're supposedly in rebellion like no one really believes that and so it's kind of embarrassing that Buchanan has this army all the way out in Utah doing who knows what so he's looking for a way out and uh, so this guy Thomas Kane shows up and says hey I can negotiate a peace I know these guys give me a letter from you from the president saying that I'm coming out to negotiate and that I have your full faith and confidence so President Buchanan says sure Here's your letter. You have my full confidence. Good luck. So Thomas Cain takes his letter, goes to the Mormons, goes to the army and starts trying to negotiate with everyone. And he comes up with this very, very clever ruse, which is he decides to divide the army because the army remember they're escorting the governor to take command of Utah. Right now the governor, he's really keen to take over an important governorship, right? He wants an economically healthy and prosperous Utah to come into and be governor of. Who wants to be governor of just the desert where nothing's going on? So that's his priority. But the general of the army is really looking to score a military victory. So he doesn't care. He'd, he'd rather invade Salt Lake City and shoot some Mormons and send them scattering. That would be a disaster for the governor. But for the general, that's a great outcome. So Thomas Kane starts to pick up on these differences and he starts to exploit them. And he does this by first creating a fake division within the Mormons. He says, hey guys, I need you to play along with this ruse. I'm gonna create a hawk camp and a dove camp. I'm gonna say that there actually were some Mormons who were really hawkish, who wanted war with the government, but actually, there was also an internal peace party. In fact, Brigham Young is the head of the peace party. Okay, and this is completely the opposite of the truth. Brigham Young was the most belligerent one who was pushing for and giving instructions to escalate the war, but it's a clever ruse, and so while the army is still wintering in the fort outside of Salt Lake City, he sets up these fake camps, And then he tells the governor, you know, you really just got to come into Salt Lake City and meet this Brigham Young guy. He's the head of the peace party. He's always wanted peace. He's always been okay with you taking over as governor. Just, Just come meet him. See how it goes. And so the guy comes into Salt Lake City. Brigham Young meets him and realizes this guy's really nice and not very bright. And that's an ideal combination for Brigham Young. He realizes I can control this guy. He can be my surrogate governor. This is going to be fine if this guy becomes governor. And so, of course, he wines him, dines him, charms him, says, you know, this is all a big misunderstanding. We can't wait for you to be governor. It's going to be fine. And this guy, his name's Governor Cumming, totally buys the ruse. He can't wait to work with Brigham Young, who he totally believes. And uh, he actually writes back, quote, some Mormons hate Brigham Young in consequence, perhaps, of his specific measures. (laughs) He's like, uh, he's writing back to the federal government, like, can you believe this man, Brigham Young? He's so great to work with. He, he's he's so in favor of peace. that Some Mormons are mad at him for he's so peaceful. They, they can't stand him. So uh, this governor coming is like, this is great. Brigham Young, I love you. Turns around to the army. Guys, I don't really need you. Well, I'm fine. And the general in the army is furious. He still vows to come into Salt Lake City. And as a consequence, on April 1st, Mormons start evacuating Salt Lake City and moving just south to to Provo, which is 40 miles south. It's where I live now, basically. And uh, this isn't the scorched earth policy that Brigham Young had threatened, but it's kind of it's him putting his finger on the trigger saying, I'll do it. Look, I'm serious. I'll do it. I'm moving people already. I know we're just down the road, but we're starting to move. And uh, this is enough to panic coming and incentivize everyone to come to an agreement. And so they send some letters to the federal government. President Buchanan agrees to terms which are blanket amnesty for everyone. Brigham Young is not going to be prosecuted for treason or for polygamy, and neither are any of the other senior Mormon leaders. And in return, the Mormons will accept the new governor, but otherwise life goes on. Brigham's kingdom of God will continue forward with no major changes. And so this is an interesting outcome because on the one hand, the Utah war is a victory because Brigham Young's not prosecuted. Other church leaders are not prosecuted. Things get to keep going as they were, which is really the main thing that they wanted. But at the same time, it's a defeat because the whole reason for the war was Brigham Young said, we're not gonna let this army come out here and and just have their way with us and install a new governor. And they did, they came out, they marched into Salt Lake City and they installed a new governor. And I think this kind of demonstrates a common pattern with Brigham Young, which is a technical failure. Technically he loses the Utah war and it's just one of many failures. Uh, He has a lot, I mean, you look at the Adam God doctrine, failure, blood atonement, arguably a failure, He tries to establish a bunch of cash crops out in utah tobacco cotton he tries to do iron mining all those industries fail he tries to create a new phonetic alphabet for immigrants to understand english better that never takes hold that fails the utah war is a failure later he tries to create these communitarian organizations called the united order those all fail his business the yx company fails during the utah war when the government cancels all of his mail contracts so it's like failure 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 and yet Through all this failure, Utah is slowly growing into exactly what he wanted, a kingdom, obedient to him, organized along the principles of Mormon doctrine that is largely independent of outside influence. There's this great saying by Winston Churchill, which is, success is going from failure to failure with no loss of enthusiasm. And you really see that with Brigham Young. Each tactical battle is a failure. And yet, because he's just so tenacious, always trying new things, and because he's always so focused on the overall vision he's achieving strategic success, despite tactical failure after tactical failure. It reminds me a lot of Walt Disney, who had this huge hit with Snow White, and then a string of disappointments that went on for decades. And yet he was achieving magnificent success, despite this growing Disney into one of the most valuable companies in the world and eventually building Disneyland. Um, And so you, you see this common pattern where you keep your eyes on the vision, you never compromise it, and you persist forward with no loss of enthusiasm, and you can still succeed, even if it seems like at each step, you're encountering these setbacks and these failures. But, um, but look, obviously, it's not all failures, right? Uh, the 1860s bring more successes. The, the Mormons stay out of the Civil War. Brigham Young stays loyal to the Union and proclaims support for it, but doesn't send any troops. And they completely avoid the devastation, destruction that affected much of the U.S. And, and while I talked about a lot of those you know, failures of cash crops, a lot of Brigham's economic experiments failed. Utah ends up flourishing regardless as a a fairly self-sufficient territory and an area that attracts quite a bit of commerce as a halfway stop between the Eastern U.S. and California. By 1867, when Brigham Young takes a tour of his kingdom, you know, wherever he goes, people throw big parties, throw big welcome ceremonies. They get together bands and sing him songs. And when he looks at all this, you know, he sees bands. He sees brass instruments. He sees violins. He's got bustling towns and good roads in town halls and big churches. And you know, despite all odds in 20 years, he has established this flourishing kingdom where, where once there was absolutely nothing, basically this whole time they've been working on the Salt Lake city temple, which is a huge project and and really beautiful and ornate. And it's like a cathedral. Uh, You should see it if you're ever in Utah and it won't be completed until well after Brigham's death, but to me, one thing that is symbolic is that in 1862, just 15 years after they first arrived in the Valley, they completed the Salt Lake theater. And you can go look it up. It's not standing anymore. They tore it down sometime mid 20th century, but it was a good theater. Uh, it wouldn't be out of place in like a smaller European city or something. It had multiple balconies, beautiful columns out front. It seated 1500 people. And that's, that's wild to me that it took 15 years to go from dust and shrubs to, uh, to decent luxury, right? Like a decently nice theater. And that to me is amazing to return to my point uh, about it being a time when people can build cities again. To me, this shows how much you can accomplish in a very short amount of time. You don't have to resign yourself to just planting the seeds that will someday grow into something cool. No, within your lifetime, you can build an amazing city. And, and this demonstrates that. Uh, Another example of this is in 1867, they complete the Salt Lake Tabernacle, a a large religious hall where they could have big meetings. And actually, when they complete it in 1867, it is the largest assembly hall in the United States. Okay. It seats 7,000 people. And that's just amazing for me to think about. They didn't have assembly halls that big in New York, in Boston, in Philadelphia. No, this place that had only been settled 20 years previously now has the largest assembly hall in the United States. You know, that that shows what you can do. Another threat emerged to their independence in 1869, maybe not as dire as the Utah War, but in 1869 is when the Transcontinental Railroad was completed. If you don't know the history, they start building the railroad in the east and in the west, and they kind of build towards the middle. And the place where they eventually meet is in Utah, near current-day Ogden, just north of Salt Lake City. I don't know. 60 miles or something like that, and the Mormons are integral in helping to build the last portion of the railroad as it draws near completion. So this is an economic boom, firstly because Mormons are paid to construct the actual railroad, but secondly because all of a sudden you have this strong economic link to the rest of the United States. So it provides an economic boom, but it also means that Mormons are no longer an isolated people. Brigham Young would never, after the construction of the railroad, uh, have the level of absolute control that he had before it was completed. And I don't want to exaggerate this. He was still indisputably the wealthiest and most powerful man in Utah by leaps and bounds. It wasn't close, but he can't demand obedience in the same way anymore. One sign that Brigham Young was losing his grasp a little bit from where it was, or perhaps loosening his grasp, was this group of people called the Godbyites. So this guy, William Godby and his friend, Elias Harrison, go to the East Coast and they discover seances what was called spiritualism. So seances, think of a hokey lady with a turban on her head, uh, you know, looking into a crystal ball or saying, Oh, I I can feel the spirit with us now that, uh, and it was very popular at the time in the United States. So you think about it at this time, all these people had just died in the civil war and this meant immense suffering. And a lot of people who missed their brothers, their sons, their fathers, and wanted to connect with them somehow. And so you have these seances, and these people saying, you know, I can receive a message for you from your dead brother. And this sounds ridiculous to us now. You know, seances are, I think most people consider them pretty hokey. But at the time, it was very popular and very, uh, honestly, like kind of high society, kind of progressive. It was a little bit like, uh, like yoga is now, right? Like, yeah, people rolled their eyes a little bit. It was kind of woo-woo. But at the same time, it was for the educated class. It was seen as smart and progressive and, and something that modern people did. And so, this guy, Godby, he comes back. He's a member of the Mormon church. He's a very successful businessman, very wealthy. He discovers spiritualism and he brings it back and starts this church, essentially, a new church. They still claim to be Mormons at first. And then, after not very long, they drop that pretense and they start something called the Liberal Institute, which was this sort of philosophical society, is what you might call it, and this place where they can practice seances. And they start a newspaper called the Salt Lake Tribune which uh, was an anti-Mormon newspaper, was Utah's preeminent primary anti-Mormon newspaper, actually still is Utah's primary anti-Mormon newspaper. And the fact that Brigham Young doesn't violently drive these people out, lets them start this newspaper, kind of shows how much things have changed. You know, For sure, a decade previously, he would have intimidated them, put pressure on them to, to leave, to get out of Dodge. And so n- now you see Brigham adapting a little bit to a new normal. And I think for the first time showing some semblance of compromise. And I think part of that is because he now felt very secure. He had accomplished what he wanted to This kingdom that he had built was independent, was religious, was following his principles. And so for the first time, he feels a little comfortable loosening the reins a little bit, and maybe also recognizes that with the railroad, he just doesn't have the same leeway to to demand obedience that he had before. But this doesn't mean that Brigham has fully given himself over to openness and cooperation. One way that he copes with this new outside influence is to create incentives and opportunities for Mormons to interact commercially. So once again, he's saying, hey, we need to boycott non-Mormon businesses and only do business with each other. So he establishes something called ZCMI, Zion's Cooperative Mercantile Institution. It's basically a cartel of Mormon merchants, and he gets people to buy into this and says, hey, Mormon citizens, I'm going to ask you to, to do commerce as much as possible with other Mormons and Mormon merchants. I'm going to ask you to lower your margins a little bit, but we're going to make it up to you on volume because all these Mormons and Utah's vast majority Mormon at this time, they're all going to be coming to your business to buy their supplies. And this is a hugely expensive endeavor for the church. It's a big gamble, but it pays off. ZCMI becomes profitable relatively quickly and stays profitable for a long time. It actually only closed its doors in 2002. So you know, 150 years. CCMI was going. And it also achieves its other goal of driving a bunch of non-Mormons out of business and does manage to strengthen the church while weakening outside business influences. But this is actually kind of the opposite of what I was talking about before. This is a tactical victory in what was a larger, you know, strategic tidal wave that he couldn't stop. Yeah. He drives some merchants out of business in Utah, uh, some non-Mormon merchants But overall, economic life was becoming more integrated with the rest of the United States and uh, less self-sufficient than it was before. The 1870s are the final decade of Brigham Young's life. He grows a little less active in this decade. Remember, he was born in 1801, so he's in his 70s. He's lived a hard life. The years have taken their toll on him. He's got kidney issues, urinary issues, digestive issues, hemorrhoids, rheumatism. Uh, He's getting a little fat. Even so, you know, even in the 1870s, he's still fairly energetic. There's a story that, that I love that I read in, in one of these books where his son Brigham Jr. is on a trip with him uh, in 1870. So he's, he's 70 years old or 69 years old. And they're visiting a southern settlement. And everyone must have drunk some bad water or something like that because everyone starts getting sick at the same time. You know, they're with like with 10 or, or 12 people or so. and All these guys start throwing up at the same time. And uh, Brigham Young Jr. says the same feeling comes upon him, like he wanted to throw up. He's kind of got his head between his legs. But he writes, quote, Father sat there and shook his fist at me, and I managed to choke it down. And then he says of his father that, quote, Fought off the feeling, produced his medicine, and was very active in treating the sick. <laughs> so anyway, I, I love that image of, you know, all these people throwing up, and Brigham Young Jr. just wanting to throw up so bad and looking at his father, who's literally shaking his fist at him and saying, No, son, you're not going to throw up. You're going to choke it down, and we are going to help the people who are throwing up. Throughout the 1870s, more of his time gets taken up fighting legal battles, both from people who are trying to prosecute the church for the practice of plural marriage, the practice of polygamy, and also during the 1870s, people try and connect Brigham Young to the Mountain Meadows Massacre. And uh, so he's he's having to defend himself from that. The last major event in Brigham Young's life was the dedication of the St. George Temple. So you remember they had dedicated a temple which is like a central meeting place for elevated and advanced ordinances, advanced ceremonies, uh, in Nauvoo. And they had started building one in Salt Lake city, but Brigham Young's vision for that was, was very large, very grand. And so it wouldn't be completed for a, a number of years after he died, but he does get to dedicate this temple in St. George, which is in Southern Utah. It's a, a much smaller city than Salt Lake city. Uh, and they had started construction on a correspondingly smaller temple. So it was finished. So, Brigham goes down and dedicates it in 1877. It's a very happy occasion. People are celebratory. And then Brigham Young comes in and gives this thundering speech. He says, You need to repent. We need to do better. Congrats on finishing the temple, but come on, step it up, people. And I think it's interesting to see how much things had changed. Like the St. George Temple was celebratory, but it wasn't this spiritual Pentecost that the dedication of the Nauvoo Temple was. And I think that tells you how the emphasis had shifted from a religion that was still primarily focused on ecstatic religious experiences in, uh, in Illinois, to now a religion that was more focused, frankly, on building a physical community, building this kingdom. The, the, the primary experience of Mormonism had changed. And as you look at it, things like speaking in tongues, miraculous healings, prophecies, exorcisms, all this stuff, Had uh, It it wasn't gone by any means, like all this stuff still happened in Utah, but it definitely um, didn't happen as often as it did when Joseph Smith was in charge. Brigham Young was trying to follow that same vision, but he did emphasize more the physical building of an actual community uh, than he did these sort of uh, spiritual experiences. Uh, This St. George Temple dedication reinvigorates Brigham Young, and 1877 is one of his more active years through the first half of the year. He's feeling great. He's getting around, he, he's giving talks. Uh, but then suddenly on August 23rd, he falls very, very ill, probably with appendicitis. And over the next four days, he got more and more delirious as he got sicker and sicker and eventually slipped out of consciousness. It is said that his last coherent words were Joseph, Joseph, Joseph. This is someone who till the very end loved Joseph Smith and still had him on his mind as he was dying. He was a man of vision. And that vision still possessed him in his final moments. I'm, I'm touched by that. The very last things that he said are very well recorded. Uh, he was given a blessing by his son. And at the end of the blessing, he muttered, amen. And then he, he slipped out of consciousness for a while, woke up and said, that's all right. Shortly thereafter, he fell asleep again. And then a little bit after that, stopped breathing. And so ended the life of Brigham Young. So what do we learn from him? The first thing is to be irrational, unreasonable, intractable, intransigent, completely insane when it comes to your vision. You know That describes Steve Jobs, Walt Disney, Thomas Edison, and it also describes Brigham Young. They insisted on perfection. You, know, you think of Brigham Young there with the weight of the U.S. Army on his doorstep, ready to kick him out. And uh, what does he do? He resists. He says... You know, we're going to, we're going to continue as an independent kingdom no matter what. And so you have to keep that in mind. If you're going to be the visionary, if you're going to be the leader, you have to be willing to be unreasonable in your commitment to your vision and to your values. Uh, Other stuff we can learn from Brigham, you know, all the normal stuff. Uh, He was a man of immense energy. I think part of that energy came from the fact that he loved what he was doing so much. He loved what he was building. It consumed him, all his thoughts and energy. He was of course, a man of focus. He was a man, and this is one thing I want people to take, a man of big vision. This theocracy, this kingdom of God, this is a big vision, right? Even if it's not your thing, I assume for most people who are listening to this, it's not their thing. But, you know, tens of thousands of people, economic development, religious celebration, a new philosophy, a new way of of looking at life and religion, a theology that no one had thought of that emphasized patriarchy and these stately powerful men who were able to command estates and households. Uh, it it might not be a vision that you agree with, but it's definitely an ambitious vision. And, um, I think people could learn from that could, could hopefully, you know, raise the level of their ambition as well. And, you know, I guess some last reflections Brigham Young literally kind of carved his likeness into the American landscape, um, both physically with, with how, he organized these cities and towns also into the genetics of America. You know, he's kind of the Genghis Khan of America. He has more than 30,000 people descended from him, including me, including Steve Young, the great American football player, Orson Scott card, the very famous science fiction author, uh, and another very successful and notable people. Not not that I'm very successful, notable, but you know what I mean? It's a very impressive legacy to leave genetically. He's one of the most successful humans of all time. And I guess just um, to end, The last thing I want to leave you with is just to talk one more time about the size of his vision. Uh, there's a quote I love from the architect, Daniel Burnham. And he said, make no small plans. They have no magic to stir men's blood and probably will not themselves be realized. Make big plans, aim high in hope and work. Remembering that a noble logical diagram once recorded will never die. But long after we are gone, will be a living thing asserting itself with ever growing insistency. And that's what Brigham Young did. He uh, he made no small plans. He made big plans. So I hope you will do the same. All right, that's it. Uh, there's a lot I didn't cover. There's a lot I did cover. I can't believe this went this long. I know I'm, this is indulgent. I'll be honest. You know, this is an important person to me. So uh, well, it was too long. But you know, if you if you're listening this far, thank you for coming with me on this on this journey. We didn't even touch on his interactions with Native Americans, his attitudes and policies towards slavery and African Americans his propensity to curse from the pulpit, the establishment of of BYU and Deseret University, later the University of Utah. Uh, there's just, there's so much more that I could say about him. But, so uh, if you're a sicko like me who wanted to learn this much about Brigham Young, uh, thanks, for, thanks for coming on this journey with me. So uh, until next time, thank you for tuning in to How to Take Over the World.